Morning, everyone. Morning. Good to see you, up and down. So, um, morning, Karis. That was very enthusiastic. <laughs> Don't you love the church and all its different personalities? And, uh, so, um, for, for those of you who don't know, I'm, I'm Dan, I'm one of the leaders of the church here, and uh, if, if you're new here, it's hello and goodbye, because I'm going off on a 10-week sabbatical today, which I'm really looking forward to, and uh, let me just take this opportunity to say thanks for being such a great church who cares for its leaders so much to actually look after us and send us away to recharge and get to know God better, and, and uh, if you're wanting to pray for me and Julie and the family over this next 10 weeks, I know what you're thinking. You're not praying for me. I've got a 10-week holiday coming up. <laughs> what, what could you possibly need prayer for? But pray for this. Pray that I get to know God better. Really want to dig into him and know him better. Pray for us as a family that we'll have some great time together. If you've got kids, you'll know uh, holidays can either be a rampaging success or can be highly challenging. And uh, just pray. It'll be a really great time together as a family. And pray that uh, I come back just really having heard from God afresh for the next season, for kings, for us here and for what God is, is wanting us to do. So, um, so looking forward to coming back, looking forward to being away, and I hope you have a great summer too if I don't catch you afterwards. Um, so today I want to look in our series on a prophetic people that we're calling this series. We're going through a number of Old Testament prophets and seeing what they speak to us today. And I want to look at the prophet Jonah. Having lived in Scotland for 14 years, I'm actually not Scottish, did you know that? Uh, some of you may have picked that up from my accent. And uh, uh, having said that, having lived in Scotland for 14 years, I deeply love living here. This feels like home more than anywhere else in the world. And we love living here, and uh, my kids, we've got four kids, they consider themselves all deeply Scottish. And uh, my wife, Julie, even... Uh, on moving here, decided she was Scottish. She said, I was born here, so I, I'm actually Scottish as well. And my, my kids, uh, one, one week at school, they got challenged to design a, a coat of arms to represent their family. And they were encouraged to use sort of buttons and kind of visuals and things to kind of create something that really represented their family. And, and my son, Sam, who was probably eight at the time, he came home with, uh, with, with his thing. He says, Dad, I've got the perfect coat of arms for us as a family. And he showed me his picture, and it, it was basically six flags. Five of them were saltires, and one was a Union Jack. <laughs> and then as if he needed to explain it to me, he said, well, the saltires are Mum, me, Jack, Sam, and Evie, and the Union Jack, that's you. <laughs> but I, I, I self-identify... As Scottish, particularly when, when, when they're on that rare occasion when there is a Scot Scottish sporting event where I can cheer along, I think, Scotland, I want you to win. But something I've never really mastered is Scots language. But there's a phrase that I love hearing. And every time I hear it, it reminds me of the person and prophet of Jonah. And that's this, for somebody to be on a sugarly peg. Have you ever heard that phrase? It means for, if your boss says to you at work, by the way, you're on a sugarly peg. That means you're about to get fired. It, it, it means that your, your conduct is, is, is so disappointing that you ought to be looking for opportunities elsewhere to further your career. And it has that sense of if you're going to choose where to hang your coat or your jacket, 
You hang it on a peg that looks like it's a safe bet. You don't hang it on the one that looks like it's about to fall out the wall. And you couldn't find a suglier peg in the Bible than the prophet Jonah. You couldn't find somebody who was more unreliable, somebody who was deliberately, more willingly deciding to run away from God and do the opposite of what God said, not just once, but throughout his life. You get to the end of the story of Jonah, which we're going to read a fair bit of in a moment. You get to the end of that story and you think, this guy hasn't changed one little bit. In all God's dealings with him, he's still as hard-hearted at the end as he is at the beginning. Yet the story of Jonah teaches us something very powerful about the kind of pegs that God hangs his jacket on. And that God doesn't look for the obvious choice. He doesn't look for the one who's going to just be reliable and always get it right. He chooses the one who often he knows isn't going to bear the weight of responsibility, who's going to let him down. The person who's going to run away and make a right mess. Yet he's a God who is so committed, not just to the mission, but to the messengers he sends, that he shapes us with his mercy, and he doesn't let go of us. And he says, no, we are going to get this job done, and I'm so committed to you, as my son, as my daughter, that I'm going to drastically change your life until your heart reflects mine. And that's what God's about in your life and mine today. The Bible says in Ephesians, it says that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. That's to say all of the prophets of the Old Testament are foundation stones for the church that we know and experience today. And you kind of think, who on earth would put Jonah in the foundations of the church? And the answer is God does. God does. Because he wants us to know that it's profoundly about his mercy that he'll build his church, not about having great, competent, gifted people. So if you're feeling a little bit less than competent, a little bit less than able today, then the good news is this, that if you feel at all like you're somebody that that lets God down once, twice, or again and again, then it's people like you that God builds his church on and he uses for his glory and he's committed to using. Talking of sugarly pegs, there's another character in the Bible, in the New Testament. His name's Peter. And at his greatest moment of opportunity, on the night that Jesus was betrayed, And he was asked by a stranger, do you know Christ? And he'd been forewarned about this conversation saying, by the way, Peter, this is going to happen. And he he, he denies Christ three times. Yet this sugly peg goes on to do some pretty amazing things. He preaches on the day of Pentecost to 3,000. And then at a later time, he writes this letter, 1 Peter, as we know it as. And talking to a group of Christians who were just trying to find their place in the world that they were finding very troubling. He said, this is the thing that you're to know most that's to define you as people of God. He says, once you were not a people, but now you're the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you've received mercy. Do you understand how defining the mercy of God is meant to be on your life? I don't know if you've ever made jelly. Yeah, you know, you know how you sort of mix the hot water in it, and it's just a liquid, isn't it? 
And if you were to just pour it on the table, it would just go everywhere. But no, you don't pour it on the table. You, you pour it into a mold or a bowl, and it takes on the shape of that bowl or that mold. Well, this is the shape that God is doing in your life. It's a shape of mercy. It's so that generations and people all around the world, anybody that you interact with, the first thing they'll say about you is not how amazing you are, but how merciful God is. And that's the story of Jonah, and we're going to read from this story today. So if you've got a Bible, you're welcome to read along. It'll appear on the screen behind me. And we'll, we'll read a chunk, then I'll summarize a bit, then we'll read a chunk. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because its wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa, where he found a, si- a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. Then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea, and such a violent storm arose, and the ship threatened to break up. All the sailors were afraid, and each cried out to his own God, and they threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. But Jonah had gone below deck, where he lay down and fell into a deep sleep. The captain went to him and said, how can you sleep? Get up and call on your God. Maybe he'll take notice of us so that we will not perish. And then the sailors said to each other, come, let's cast lots to find out who's responsible for this calamity. They cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. So they asked him, tell us who's responsible for making all this trouble for us? What kind of work do you do? Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? He answered, I'm a Hebrew and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. This terrified them. They asked, what have you done? They knew he was running away from the Lord because he had already told them so. The sea was getting rougher and rougher, so they asked him, What should we do to make the sea calm down for us? Pick me up and throw me in the sea, he replied, and it will become calm. I know that it is my fault that this great storm has come upon you. And then the the story continues. Uh, He gets thrown overboard, and the same God who sent a storm, who, who rearranged weather systems to confront Jonah, then also sent the giant fish to rescue him. And he gets trapped inside this fish for three days and three nights. And then that fish regurgitates him onto a beach back where he first began. And then in chapter 3, verse 1, we read these words, Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord this time and went to Nineveh. Now Nineveh was a very large city. It took three days to go through it. Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city, proclaiming, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. The Ninevites believed God. A fast was proclaimed and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. Verse 10. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and didn't bring on them the destruction he had threatened. But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong. And he became angry. He prayed to the Lord. Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? This is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you're a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take away my life, for it's better for me to die than to live. 
And God replies to him graciously. He says, Should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and also many animals? Lord, I just pray that you'd uh, speak to us this morning as we've read your wonderful eternal word. We pray that you'd bring it alive for us and help us to apply it. Lord, change our hearts, we pray. Amen. The first thing you can't help but notice about the story of Jonah is that Jonah takes a lot of shaping. He takes a lot of shaping to be the prophet that God wants him to be. Yet God is deeply committed to that task. The Bible uh, in in, uh, Isaiah 56, it says, God, you are the potter and we are the clay. And God's about a great work of shaping in your life and mine to make us reflect his heart more than we currently do. And that process often takes longer than we imagine it might. In fact, that process will never fully be complete until the day we see Jesus face to face. So here's the thing. However soft-hearted or mercy-orientated you feel today, God's got a shaping work to do in your life. Often we move through phases of life as a As a younger person, you can be very idealistic and you can't understand what's wrong with the world and why people hate each other and why people have such animosity against each other. And then you move into a subsequent season of life where you become just aware of the injustices of the world and you totally see all the issues of the world and the problems and what causes them. And you can find yourself becoming a more intolerant person. But the place God wants us to be is to be a people who are not unaware of the world we live in, We're deeply aware of its problems and the problems of the human heart, but but then, like God, we choose to show mercy and have mercy and have a heart of love and mercy. God wants us to be shaped by mercy. And I want to look at four things from the prophet of Jonah that shape our understanding of mercy. And here's the first one that we see right from the opening word, right from the opening verse. The first point is this, that we see a God who is merciful. A God who is merciful, right there in verse 1 of chapter 1. It says, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Whenever you read about the word of the Lord coming to somebody in the Bible, it's an act of mercy from God. It's an act of mercy from a God who could stay distant from people. It's an act of mercy from a God who created everything, yet a creation that has chosen to walk away from him. And God would always be within his rights to to, to not communicate. But whenever you read this phrase, it's an exciting phrase in the Bible. Whenever you come across it, it's saying, the word of the Lord came. It's like, gosh, God is still interested. God still cares. And in Job chapter 36, verse 26, it says, How great is God! He's beyond our understanding. God is unknowable unless he chooses to reveal himself to us as human beings. In in our sort of scientific world that we live in, we, we just assume that if we get a microscope big enough, then we will find out everything. Well, you won't find God that way. 
You can only find God by God showing himself. In fact, the greatest revelation that God could ever give the person of Jesus Christ in John chapter 1, he's referred to as the Word of God. And it means this, that God hasn't given up on the human race, but he has chosen through his Son to make himself known. And if you're ever asking yourself the question, does God care about me or my family or my work colleagues or this city or this nation or this world? Has he given up on it? The answer is this, no. Because Jesus came. Because Jesus came as the word of God to share his word with us. Every time you open your Bible, be reminded that this is a book of mercy. It's a book that shows us what God is like. It's a book that shows us what he wants to show us. Ask for God to speak to you through it. Here's the uh, second thing we see in the book of Jonah, and uh, I don't want to spend too long on this, but he says, this is uh, the... He's described as Jonah, the son of Amittai. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Now, we don't know who Amittai was, but what we know is this, that Jonah was somebody's son. He, he, he had parents, just like you do. He had an upbringing, just like you do. And we don't know for sure, but some Jewish theologians believe that Amittai was the husband of the lady who Elisha promised a son to because she was barren and could have no children. And that child, if you remember the story from 2 Kings chapter 4, the story is this, that Elisha prophesied, said, you will have a son by this time next year. It's a miracle baby, which could have been Jonah. And then that, that boy dies in childhood. And Elisha comes back and he raises him from the dead. So if this is that boy... He had a pretty couple of pretty miraculous encounters in his life thus far. And yet, you wouldn't pick up any of that from Jonah. When you read his story, he just seems such a misery. He seems like life is just not fair to him. He seems that everybody owes him something. He seems self-centered. He seems overwhelmed by himself, self-pitying, able to see beyond. And the truth is this, whether he is that guy or not, every one of us, when you look back at your past, there are things that perhaps you can feel sorrowful for, but there are things that you can give thanks to God for. There are things that have deeply shaped you, the mercy of God evident in your life, that have been good, helpful influences, perhaps in, in the middle of a difficult upbringing. God gave you a friend or a person that you could rely on. Or perhaps you look around and think, oh, I've got some great church friends. Or perhaps God's done some amazing things in your past. It's not all of the time, but you know that there's things, and we're to give thanks for those things. Because when we give thanks for those things, we make ourselves more aware of the mercy of God. Jonah seemed to fail in that regard initially, but it's only when God traps him inside a fish for three days that finally he utters these words. He says, with, I will sacrifice with shouts of grateful praise to you. 
Now, that probably wasn't the nicest church meeting he'd ever been in inside a whale, but finally he began to thank God for the mercies that God had shown him in his life so far. I want to suggest to you that mercy people, people shaped by mercy, are thankful people. And when you think about the things God has done in your life, it gives you cause for great praise and thanksgiving. There's an old hymn that goes this way. It says, count your blessings, name them one by one, and it will surprise you what the Lord has done. (laughs) Count your blessings, count them one by one, and it will surprise you what the Lord has done. Why don't you take some time this week to, to go through your life and write down every blessing God has given you? Because that's the kind of people that God wants to shape us into being. Here's the third thing. It's about our life now. So that was about our past. Our life now and our experience now is all because of mercy. If you're a Christian here today, you'll know this, that the book of Jonah is a prophetic book that tells us something about Jesus. Jesus himself quoted Jonah when people were asking him for a sign. It's interesting to note that Jesus believed the book of Jonah was a historical book. It wasn't a fairy tale. It wasn't a parable. He said, no, no. He said, this is the sign that will be given to you people who don't believe in me, he says. Those of you who, who are asking for a sign and, and, and you're saying, well, are you the one, Jesus, and all that. He says, no sign will be given you except the sign of Jonah, who was in the belly of a fish for three days and three nights And as surely as that was true, he said, the Son of Man will be in the three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So he uses the story of Jonah to talk about himself. And he says, the book of Jonah is foreshadowing something greater, which is this, that I am going to die, I'm going to be in a tomb for three days, and I'll be raised to life again. Just as surely as Jonah was in the belly of a whale and he was regurgitated again, So Jesus said, I will be in the belly of the earth and I will come out again. Now, this is also about you because the Bible says that if you're a Christian, it means to be united with Christ. We've been celebrating something like this morning, that great word that Maureen shared with us. Paul would happily describe himself as being crucified with Christ. Romans chapter 6, it says, having been united with Christ in his In his death, we will be surely united with him in his resurrection. That is to say that the picture we have of Jesus is this. Whatever happens to him happens to us. We have died with Christ and we are raised to life with Christ. And we are to be people who experience and know mercy in the present tense because of what Christ has done for us. So I'm going to read to you from Ephesians chapter 2. You're welcome to turn to this. Which tells us something of the present mercy that we understand through the work of Christ. He says, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. That's God's right judgment for our wrongdoing. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love for us, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It's by grace you've been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us 
in Christ Jesus. There's an age to come. Those verses are saying there's an age to come when people, angels, other Christians will point at you and they'll say, isn't God's mercy amazing? Isn't it incredible what God did through that person? Who would have ever dreamed that God would save somebody like them? And he uses these phrases to describe your current status. I know people like to talk about status these days. You're online, offline, all those sorts of things. Well, this is your status. According to Ephesians 2, you were spiritually dead, but now you are alive together with Christ. What's your status? Wow, this is almost Pentecostal, isn't it? What's your, <laughs> let me ask you again. What's your status? Isn't that great? This is your status right now. What's it a result of? Mercy. Mercy because of God's great mercy. What's it because of? Mercy. God's great mercy. Incredible. Now, not only does it say that, not only are you alive together with Christ right now, this is your situation. In fact, uh, D.L. Moody, uh, the, the famous preacher, I love this, this, this uh, uh, saying of his. He was coming towards the end of his life. He was getting very ill, and he said, he said, one of these days, he said, you will read in the newspaper that D.L. Moody is dead. He says, and when you read it, don't believe a word of it. He said, for at that moment, I will be more alive than ever before. And this is the work that God is doing in your life. You are spiritually alive now, and he's making you more and more alive. And one day, when death finally seems to get the better of your body, the truth is this, you will be more alive than ever before, and one day God will clothe you with a resurrection body, and you'll be more alive in any sense than you could ever feel right now. And that's why the life to come is always to be valued above any pain and suffering you can experience in this life. That's why Syrian Christians who give up their lives in this day and age are not to be pitied, but they are being promoted to something far more glorious. Here's the other thing it says. Not only is your status alive together with Christ, but what's your position? Seated in heavenly places with Jesus. Wow. Wow. Let that sink in for a moment. You, right now, positionally, seated in heavenly places with Jesus. According to Isaiah 14, it's an obscure passage, but the, the, the devil, Satan, is pictured as trying to usurp God's authority and saying, God, budge up on your throne. I want to sit alongside you. I want to rule and reign. And God says, clear off, Satan. He throws him out of heaven. This is what you get in Christ, seated in heavenly places with him, invited to be a co-heir with Christ. That's what the Bible says about you. Invited to the highest position, not to be worshipped as God, but to be positionally there alongside him. Isn't that incredible? What's your status? Alive, together with Christ. What's your position? seated in heavenly places with Jesus. That's where you are right now. And what's it because of? Mercy. 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 You won't have to put up with this very long, guys. I'm, I'm going on sabbatical. I'll be gone for 11 weeks, and 
and, uh, and I'm sure the other guys won't, um, won't do this to you, but God, who is rich in mercy, doing amazing present things in your life which will last for an age to come. What qualified Jonah to be saved from his rebellion? Nothing. What qualifies you for the mercy of God? Nothing other than God's great love for you. Here's the fourth thing about mercy from the prophet Jonah, and this is my final point. It's future mercy. It's mercy that goes on and on. So Jonah, the failure. Chapter 3, verse 1. The word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the city of Nineveh and proclaim to the message I give to you. And this time, Jonah does it. And everybody goes, finally. But do you know, the Bible is full of second chance heroes and third chance heroes. And the church today, King's Church, is full of second chance and third chance and fifth chance and hundredth. I'm sorry, hundredth chance. I'm a little bit Scottish there, didn't I, for a moment. Hundredth, cha- hundredth chance heroes. People who disappoint, people who miss it, people who let God down. But the word of the Lord comes to them a second and a third and a fifth and a 99th and a hundredth time. That's God's commitment to you. It's mercy that goes every day. Abraham, Jacob the deceiver, Moses the murderer, David the adulterer, Gideon the fearful, Samson the thug, Jonah the runaway. You could name dozens more. You know, sometimes, when I was a child, I remember my dad used to play a, uh, an LP. You know, remember those vinyl? And it's quite fashionable again now, isn't it? But... Um, and, and it, it got stuck. You always used to skip. It's quite an intense piece of music. And it always got to this point where whenever I was in the room with it and it got stuck and the needle would begin to flick back and forth and it would just repeat this certain phrase again and again and again. And, and, it, it, and I, it just so upset me. I would run out of the room in tears saying, Dad, it's doing it again. I, I, I was quite young at the time. Just understand, I wasn't a teenager. I was like three or something. But... Um, and, and, he'd, and he'd come and just skip it onto the next bit of the track and we'd, we'd listen to the rest. And here's the thing about you and me, that sometimes we get into cycles in our life and we think we'll never change. You get into a rerun in your mind and you, uh, maybe you get into a conversation with some people at work and the subject of God and church comes up and you do your usual thing and you, you just go quiet because you don't feel bold and courageous enough to pitch in and say what you think. Maybe you find yourself in a relationship and, and there's something that presses your button and it just gets you stirred up and angry and it happens again and again and you think, I, I just can't change. And this world re- reinforces that message. It says to you again, it says, well, just be yourself, just be the person who you really are. What they're saying is just keep being the stuck record that you always are. And somehow find a way to justify it. Well, the Bible says that you can change. The Bible says that there's a second chance for you. And the Bible says that somebody as stupid and rebellious as Jonah finally made it. And he obeyed God. 
And he saw a city turned around. And today I want to invite you to God's second and third and fifth chance for your life. You might feel like you've blown it a hundred times, but there's a God who wants to move the needle off and move you on to the next stage of your life. He's a God who changes lives. He can change you. If he can hard, change a hard-hearted hard uh, prophet like Jonah, he can certainly change a spirit-filled child of God like you. And for Jonah to move on, he needed to understand that he wasn't disqualified by his past because divine mercy had qualified him again. And God's great love for you qualifies you to be the man or the woman that he will use. There was once a story of a, uh, a, 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 an employee who went to work on the New York Stock Exchange for a large company, and, and uh, he, he went in, and he met his boss, and he met the staff, and, and uh, he, was a, he was a pretty sort of edgy character, so he, he basically invested hard. He thought, I'm going to really impress I'm going to really impress my boss and the people I work with. I'm going to really push the boundaries. Within a week, he'd lost 10 million pounds. And his boss called him into the office. And he thought, I know what is coming next. He thought, I'll just get my CV ready for the next employees. And his boss ranted at him and shouted at him and asked him how he could have been so stupid and what he thought he was doing and, and, and why he didn't take advice and all these things. And, and the guy just listened to it. His head sank lower and lower. And then his boss said, right, get back to work. And he looked at his boss and he said, well, you're not going to fire me. And the boss said, of course I'm not going to fire you. He said, I've just spent 10 million pounds training you. <laughs> you know, none of your past mistakes are defining of you. They're preparatory. They're preparatory for your future. The mistakes you make in your past are things that shape your future. And God invests in us even when we fail. And he never lets go of us. He's a father who loves his children and never lets go of us. Here's the question I want to finish with today. How can we respond? Romans 12 verse 1, I think, answers this question for us beautifully. He says, I've urged you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Here's what you can do. If you're wanting to respond to the mercy of God today, the first thing you can do is this. You say, well, God, here I am. Here I am. If my success is not dependent on me, but on your great mercy, then here I am and I qualify for mercy today. Ask God to take all of you. Make your life a monument to mercy. An old hymn put it this way. It said, take my life, let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. Take my hands, let them move at the impulse of thy love. Take my feet, let them be swift and beautiful for thee. Take my voice, take my lips, take my silver and my gold. Take, not a mite would I withhold. Take my intellect, take my will, take my heart. Ask God to take all of you. Here's the second way that you can respond to God's mercy 
today is to say, God, help me to be merciful. Help me to show your heart better to other people in a world in need of mercy. Ask God to make you not like the story of that parable that Jesus once told where the, the, the great king lets off somebody with a 20-year debt and then he goes and starts throttling somebody for owing him a few pounds. Yet we get like that in this legalistic world we live in. We get taught that service, good services are right. When's the last time you had mercy on an employee of a company that let you down? And he said, you know what, I know what that's like. That's what it is to show mercy. It's to show mercy to people who deserve judgment. Ask God to help you to be merciful. And here's the third thing. Perhaps the band could join me as we close here. We never lose the wonder of mercy. We keep turning mercy back as an excuse to worship the God who has loved us with such a love. Never lose the wonder of mercy. Never lose sight of the cross of Jesus where mercy paid for you, where the Son of God died for you. He took your sin and mine. And though we were running away from God, there was a God who loved you enough to say, even though you're running in the wrong direction, I'm going to do something that will enable you to come back. Never lose the wonder of mercy. And today I want to invite you to experience mercy. Perhaps you feel like you've been running away from God. And perhaps this is a moment where you know you need to turn around. And I want to invite you to turn around as we sing this song. Perhaps today you feel like you're a stuck record and you know there's cycles of behavior in your life and you think it just goes on again and again and I, I just keep acting the same way. There is mercy for you today to break you out of your rut. God wants you to respond. Well, here's the third thing. Maybe God is calling you to do something and you really don't want to do it. And today, I want to invite you to take a step of courage. And I say it's courage, but you know what? The very worst thing you can do with your life is to try and outwit God and run the opposite direction because it just takes longer. So today, have the courage to take that step, do that thing he's asking you to do. And God's mercy will flow through you.